Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, last week as a church, we got to study one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful truth that there is, that God loves his people. We read in 1 John 3, verse 1, last week, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And we just got to ruminate over that truth last week, celebrate that truth last week, and then even in our life groups, we departed from our norm of discussing the passage from the previous Sunday's sermon, and we instead took a detour into Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son and the father who welcomed back his child, and we got to get a glimpse into the heart of God. So all week, Last week, as a church, we were celebrating, singing, thinking about the incredible love of God for his people. It's just a marvelous doctrine. Some of you aren't smiling right now at this doctrine. You should be. It's a a beautiful and incredible truth. But this week, we have a much more difficult truth to digest, and it's this, that if God has made us into his spiritual family, if he's turned us into his children, we must love our spiritual siblings. You know, last week you might have celebrated God's love for you, but this week we're going to learn that we must struggle to show our love for God's people, for God's family. Now, I've mentioned this already as we've been going through the book of 1 John, but really in 1 John, John mentions three tests of the Christian faith. Test number one could be asked with the question, do I believe in the true, legitimate, historical, biblical Jesus Christ? Do I believe that he's the son of God, God the son, who came to die for the sin of the world? And then number two, the question would be, am I living in general in a direction of obedience to him and his word? Am I walking in the light? Am I lowering myself? Am I submitting myself to God and his ways? And, and, and test number three could be phrased this way. Do I love God's people? Do I care for God's church? Do I love my spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus? And by this point in the letter, John has already declared all three tests. He's introduced all of them. And for the rest of the letter, John is going to revisit each one of those tests. And today, he's going to revisit the third test, do I love God's people? So what I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna do something that they tell you not to do in Bible college or in seminary. I'm gonna give you a seven-point sermon, okay? They, they tell you you're supposed to give two or three points, but I'm gonna give you seven points from this passage to help you learn how to love God's people. So you ready for these? Number one is this, be aware of the temptation to neglect love. Be aware, number one, of the temptation to neglect love. Let me show you what I'm talking about from verse 11 and 12 in our passage today. Verse 11, if you follow along in your Bibles, it says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be, verse 12, like Cain, who was of the evil one 
and murdered his brother. And we're going to stop right there. We'll look at the rest of verse 12 in a moment. But here, John starts this section by reminding us of, notice verse 11, the message that we heard from the beginning. You see, when Jesus came into your life, when you heard the gospel for the first time, when there was the beginning of your walk and your relationship with God, what did you see? You came face to face with the cross of Jesus Christ. And at the cross, what you discovered was that God loves you But you also discover that God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. From the very beginning of our Christian lives, we are taught, trained. It's communicated to us that God loves us, but that he also loves others, and that we are to love God's people. Jesus said it this way in John 13, verse 34. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. But if only it was that simple. You see, the reality is we are tempted to neglect love. That's this first point. Understand, we are tempted to neglect love. Now, I I wanted to make this first point, be aware of the temptation to hate. But the word hate makes me think of an intense dislike. But the passage, though it includes intense dislike, will show us lovelessness on two extremes. It will show us intense dislike in the extreme of murder, as we're going to see with Cain, but it will also show us later in the passage intense dislike in the form of apathy or in the form of indifference. Just coming to a place where you say, you know, I don't care about the church. I don't care about the people of God. And Cain stands out here in verse 12 as an excellent example or prototype of this kind of lovelessness. Now, some of you might not know who Cain is. John just writes about him and assumes that you have a working understanding of who Cain is. And if you don't know his story, let me me, uh, introduce you to him today. Cain was one of the sons of Adam and Eve, and he had a brother named Abel. And apparently, Adam and Eve taught their children to be worshipers of God. And one day, Cain and Abel, the Bible teaches in Genesis chapter four, offered sacrifices to the Lord. Cain apparently was a farmer, so he offered from the fruit of the ground. Abel apparently was a rancher, and so he offered to the Lord from the first of the flock, the firstborn of the flock. And this is what it says about their sacrifices in Genesis chapter four, verse five. It says that God regarded the sacrifice of Abel, but for Cain and his offspring, or his offering, he had no regard. In other words, God received the sacrifice of Abel, but he rejected, for some reason, the sacrifice of Cain. And the question that we have to ask is, why did God reject the sacrifice of Cain? What made Abel and Cain's sacrifice different uh, from each other? Now, a lot of people pose a lot of different suggestions as to why Abel's was received and Cain's was rejected, but look at what God says about it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse four. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. You see, to me, that answers the question of what was different about their sacrifices. When Abel came to God, he came with an attitude of faith. He came saying, God, I believe you, I trust you, I'm leaning upon you. But when 
Cain came to God. Apparently, there was an attitude, not of faith, but of works. God, I deserve for you to hear me. My sacrifice earns me an audience with you. And God rejected that sacrifice so that generations, and not just them, would learn that we must approach God by faith. But rather than learning from the rejection of his sacrifice, Cain was enraged, and he wanted to kill his brother Abel. A poison was released into his inner being. His soul was infected. And in that moment, notice what happens. Genesis chapter four, verse six and seven. I'll put this on the screen for you. It says, the Lord in that moment said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You see, God showed Cain what was happening. He said, sin is lying at the door. It's ready to pounce upon your life. That temptation growing within you to show lovelessness to your brother, hate to your brother, it's stirring inside of you. But instead of heeding God's warning, Cain blew right through it and committed the first murder. Now in a moment, we're gonna look at why Cain did this, but we must first consider the process that he went through. God told him that sin was crouching at the door. The evil one was tempting Cain, trying to draw him into a lovelessness concerning or about his brother Abel. The word murder here in this passage is actually a Greek word that is sometimes translated slaughter. He slaughtered his brother. And Cain, the whole time, was not oblivious to the temptation. God showed him that sin was crouching at the door. And we should not be oblivious either. The temptation to neglect love, to hold it back from our brothers and sisters in Christ, it is ever present in our lives. I remember many years ago when I was a crazy young youth pastor, there was another pastor in the church, the worship pastor at the time, who's since moved on to other things, but he and I had a little rivalry together, a little friendly rivalry. And uh, what we would do, because for both of us with our jobs and what we were doing for the church at the time, we were the first couple of people to show up on Sundays. And usually we got here when it was still dark outside. So we got into this thing where we tried to startle the other person. Like whoever got there first, the second guy would try to startle the other. So sometimes it would come in the form of I'd be sitting at my desk and just kind of studying or thinking or whatever, and he would walk on the outside of the building and he would smack my window as hard as he could. Or sometimes he'd be there, you know, stringing up his guitar and I would sneak up behind him and grab his shoulders and, you know, freak him out. And on and on this went. We'd hide behind corners. We'd do all these different things to just, you know, have fun with each other, but I decided one day that I was gonna put an end to the whole thing. And so I got here early and I parked in a place where he would not see my vehicle. I came into the church building. I saw his headlights coming down the little curvy driveway. I locked the front door and I set the alarm to the church building so it looked like nobody was in the building. Then I went and stood on a countertop that hovered over his office door in the pitch black dark. This guy comes in, he hears the beeping of the alarm, he goes and touches the keypad, and then he goes to his office and he's jingling his keys. And right above his head, with a banshee-like scream, I just 
yelled into his ear. And after his heart attack, <laughs> he told me in no certain terms that he wanted the game to be finished. <laughs> but while our little game was on, whenever I came onto the campus early in the morning, I was alert. I knew that he might be ready to pounce. And it's this type of readiness that we have to have concerning the temptation to lovelessness. All around us, opportunities to neglect love abound, even when we come to church. We come in and the parking lot's a little full with, with cars that represent people that are eager to worship the living God, but we're upset that we have to park so far away. Or we drop our kids off and there's a Calvary Kids volunteer who's laid down their time, part of their weekend, and gone through training so that they could serve our children, but they don't pay as much attention to our kids as we like, or don't get along with our kids quite as we'd like, and we're upset. Or an usher directs us in a direction that we don't want to go. Or a pastor doesn't shake our hand. Or God forbid, someone is sitting in our seat. You see, there, there'll be a countless opportunities to be offended if you give yourself to the local church or to anybody in the body of Christ. There'll be a million opportunities to take offense on one hand or to grow indifferent to your brothers and sisters in Christ on the other hand. The temptation is real. Like Cain, sin is crouching at the door. But rather than give in to outrage on one hand or detachment, on the other hand, we have to stop and realize that the tempter of our souls is the one who is trying to get us into a pattern of lovelessness towards other Christians. So we have to understand the temptation to neglect love. Number two, let's look at this in verse 12. Number two, be alert concerning your potential or our potential for jealousy. Be alert about your potential for jealousy. Look at the end of verse 12. He says it this way, and why did he murder him? Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Here, John continues using Cain as an example. He asks this straightforward question, why did Cain kill Abel? The answer is very simple, because his own deeds, Cain's own deeds were evil and his, brother, his brother's deeds were righteous. You see, Cain was jealous of Abel. He, he saw his brother and he saw the favor of God upon his brother's life. He saw his brother's purity, his wholesomeness, his righteousness. And he knew that his brother was a good man. And he saw the blessing of God upon him and it enraged him. And jealousy began to swell in his heart. Instead of learning from Abel's life, Cain lashed out at Abel's life. And I think this is often how it is in the body of Christ. We can quickly become jealous of other believers, especially those who are righteous and obviously favored, graced, blessed by God. One commentator said it this way, they said, John touched a sensitive nerve here, since hatred toward another Christian is often prompted by a feeling of guilt about one's own life as compared with that person's. This is 
a common occurrence all throughout Scripture. The religious leaders killed Jesus because they were jealous of him. The religious leaders killed Stephen because they were jealous of him. Saul, before he was converted, persecuted the church in part because of his jealousy for their lives. And this potential to lash out against other believers because of jealousy, it resides inside of all of us. You know, one church member might see the genuine and loving and happy marriage of another member in the church and begin to despise them for their good fortune and the joy that they have and maybe even begin to despise all marriages. Or another member might witness the professional skill and advancement of another member of the church that they keep getting promoted that God is blessing their work and grow jealous of their success. Or someone might watch someone else in the church with gifts and talents and abilities where God is using their lives and perhaps even in a way that they'd love for God to use their lives and grow jealous and look for an excuse to tear down the other. I think a lot of times parents do this in the church. They might see a happy family or respectful children and say, man, I I wish I had that, and immediately begin making excuses about how it came to be in that other family. You know, pure luck or dumb fortune. And they might excuse their own situation as a mere chance, rather than rejoice at the blessings that God has given to this other family and maybe even try to learn from a healthy family. A lot of times parents first move is to tear down the other. But it's not just parents who engage in this brand of jealousy. Believers of all types can do this. And if we're not careful, it will manifest, this jealousy, it will manifest in ugly ways. And pretty soon, you could have a church where it's marrieds versus singles, or old versus young, or men versus women, or pastors versus the congregation, or rich versus poor. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says things like Romans 12, 15, that we should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We should understand there's different seasons of life and people will go through these different seasons. And every time we set foot on the church campus or go to our life group or open up Instagram, we have to remember the potential for jealousy inside of all of us, amen? All right, number three, don't join the world in hating Christians. Don't join the world in hating Christians. Let me show you what I mean after we read verse 13. Let's read it together. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, it's it's obvious what's happening in John's mind. Who had he just talked about? He talked about Cain and Abel, right? Cain saw righteous Abel and was jealous of him, hated him, and then murdered him because of Abel's righteousness. And in John's mind, he thinks, You know, sometimes that's going to happen in the world's relationship with the church. The the church is supposed to be righteous, like Abel. The church is supposed to live a different kind of life, like Abel. The church is supposed to be pure and holy and clean, like Abel. And what is the big message of the church? The message of the church is God loves you, and he died on the cross for your sins. And sometimes that message falls upon ears and hearts that are not ready to receive it. And it might be an offensive message. You're saying I have sins? You don't engage in what I engage in? 
You think you're better than me. And sometimes a persecution can come from the world toward the church. The righteous voice of the church, along with its constant message that all humanity must be saved from their sins, sometimes grates upon the minds of the world. One commentator used an example about a man in Athens named Aristides who was framed and unjustly condemned to death. It was a, it was a sham kind of conviction. And they asked one of the jurymen about his decision. How could he cast a vote against such a righteous person? And his answer was that he was tired of hearing Aristides referred to as Aristides the Just. He just hated that title. And as he thought about this man, he thought, I want to be done with him. I'm tired of hearing about his righteous life. You see, the community of faith, we should live differently from the world. Our lifestyle rejects greed and lusts and intoxicants and other sins of the flesh. And often, like Cain hated Abel, the world will hate us. And notice what John says in verse 12. His exhortation is, don't be surprised about that. Don't be surprised when that occurs. But in contrast, here's what should be shocking. What should be shocking is when other Christians take up the posture of the world and begin hating their fellow believer, looking down on them, despising them. Look, here's the thing. Sometimes, I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes people in the church do weird things. <laughs> if you're brand new to Christianity, you might not know about this yet, but this week you'll probably learn about it. You know, I get that that happens. I remember when I was a young man and somebody handed to me my first ever Christian rap tape. Christian hip-hop has come a long way in the last 30 years. This first tape I received was embarrassing. It was terrible. It was just so weird. And I've seen all kinds of odd things. I remember watching a group of Christians hand out leaflets on the perils of sorcery to nice families who were standing in line to watch the first Harry Potter movie many years ago. I've seen all manner of strange convictions. I've seen rudeness on full display under the guise of mentoring or discipleship or speaking the truth in love. I've seen political stands taken up as if they're a stance for the gospel itself. And all that stuff, it's bothered me. But I know that I cannot respond by withholding love from my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's an unacceptable response. You see, the church if you think about it, it's, it's a wild organism. It's multi-ethnic and multi-generational. It's worldwide, and it's comprised of every class of people you can imagine. If you think you have a family that's diverse, the church family is much more diverse than your biological family. And think about it, and sometimes I think about it, and I think, as much as I might think that there's people doing weird things in the name of Christ out there, I might be the weird uncle in this family from time to time. I might be doing the strange things. But love is the only option. Love is the only response. I can't join the world in hating my fellow Christian. All right, number four, here's the next one. Recognize that loving is living. Recognize that loving is living. Let's read verse 14 and 15 together and I'll show you what I mean. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life 
because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, I need to spend a second interpreting these two verses for you so that we don't come away with the wrong idea from what John is saying. One, one of the first ideas we need to dispense with is the idea that no person who's committed actual murder could ever become a Christian. That's not true. Scripturally, there are murderers who came into Christ and will be with them for all of eternity. So if you've done that crime, that doesn't mean that you are somehow out of the scope of the gospel. There's only one sin that a person cannot be forgiven from. It's the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ, rejecting his cross. But these verses are customarily taken to mean that it's impossible for a true Christian to hate fellow believers. Instead, because we, verse 14, passed out of death and into life, that means we've been born again, we love the brothers. So in this interpretation, since Jesus equated hatred with murder in uh, Matthew chapter 5, and since murder does not fit those with eternal life, to hate Christians must mean that someone is not yet converted. Okay, that's the standard interpretation, but to me, that line of interpretation doesn't stand up under closer inspection. Think about it. First of all, if, if it's impossible for true Christians to hate other Christians, then why does John and the rest of the Bible have to exhort us over and over again to love each other? You know, if it were impossible for us to do anything but love each other because we have these new natures, then why does the Bible have to exhort us all the time to lay down our lives for others? Second, it seems like an ignorant position to think that Christians are incapable of hatred. I mean, look around. Look in the Bible itself. The Old and New Testaments are filled with examples of believers who behaved poorly against other believers. Think David against Uriah. This is why we're constantly exhorted to put off things like anger, wrath, malice, and slander, and put on things like compassionate hearts, kindness, and patience in Colossians 3. The thing that trips us up, though, are two statements from John. Look at them again. In verse 14 is the first. He says, whoever does not love abides in death. And then in verse 15, he says, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay, here's what you have to remember, though. For John, eternal life meant more than being saved or going to heaven when you die. That's a lot of times how we think of eternal life. It's, I'm saved, and one day when I die or Jesus returns, I'm going to meet him forever. I have everlasting length of life with God. But John though he does believe that eternal life is that, he thinks it's bigger than that. He thinks eternal life starts the moment you're born again. So in his mind, it seems to work like this. You have, as a Christian, eternal life forever with God, but you can enjoy that eternal life right now today. 
And if you decide to walk in the darkness, and part of the darkness is living a life of hatred or lovelessness towards your fellow brother and sister in Christ, then you're not going to be living in a way that is tapping into the eternal life that you have forever with God. You can tap into it today, and the way you can tap into it today is through a life of love. In, in a sense, what we're learning here in these two verses is that loving God's people is a way to tap into your eternal life today. In other words, to love, like I said, is to live. To love is to live. Now, there's a lot of different ways that I could exhort you here today from this point, that to love is to live. And I was praying about this point this week and just thinking about it, and it made me think about my own life in Christ. You see, my call into the ministry did not start with a love for the word and a desire to declare the word. No, many months before I began thinking about knowing the word so that I could re-communicate the word to others, many months before that, God began to birth love in my heart for his people. And I can honestly tell you, I was 18 years old, and it shocked, my, it was like a shock to my system. Because I prayed and I asked the Holy Spirit to help me, to grow me, to give me any gifts that he wanted to give me, and all of a sudden I started noticing I actually care about other Christians. This shouldn't have been a big shock, but it was a massive shock to me. Like, wow, I actually love other people. And so in thinking about this exhortation or, or thinking about this point, I thought that what I would do is take a moment to talk to any future ministers of the gospel who are present today. I, I believe that every single Christian who's here today, all of us are called to the ministry. It says in Ephesians chapter four that God has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers to equip the saints, that's every Christian, for the work of the ministry. So we're all called to the ministry. But there are some people who are uniquely called to full-time church work or maybe even pastoral work. And some of you might be in a stage of your life where you're considering the potential of that call of God upon your life. And if it's not you, who is going to do it? Somebody needs to be the one to declare the truth to the next generations. So I'm pleading with you. It's a hard life. It's a difficult life. It's one of those jobs where you know that you're never done and that there's always more. There's always more people to reach. There's always more disciples to make. But what I wanted you to see from this passage is it's a full life because done in love, you are tapping into real life. It's a life where you get a chance to express love for other human beings. And I thought that while I was talking to you, I might take a second to talk to any potential parent of those who are here who might declare a call to ministry. If your child expresses an inclination to study theology, expresses a potential desire to go into the ministry, please do not discourage them. Don't let your heart be filled with fear. I've seen this happen to parents many times. One fear that a parent has is their child's welfare and provision. And look, I'm not gonna mix any words about it or mislead you. A degree in dentistry will definitely pay better than a degree in theology. 
It's absolutely sure, at least on this side of eternity. Look, the world needs dentists, but the world also needs missionaries and pastors, evangelists, leaders in the body of Christ. So lift your eyes to the heavens and trust God with your child. Also, remember 1 Corinthians 1.27, which tells us that God uses the foolish of the world to confound the wise. And maybe God wants to use the little fool that's grown up in your house <laughs> to lead people to Jesus, to point them to the Lord. Every servant of Christ you've ever seen, you know this intuitively, you know that it's the grace of God that has fueled them. And so perhaps it's the grace of God that will fuel your child for the work that God has asked them to do. So I just wanted to make that point or make that plea in this point that loving makes for a good life. Loving is living. Let's move on to number five in verse 16. Number five, to love the church well, we have to lay down our lives. We have to lay down our lives. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Jesus, he laid down his life for his church. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now this is very fitting. John has already showed us what love doesn't look like, right? He used an example, Cain. It doesn't look like Cain, but now he shows us what love does look like. And it comes as no surprise to all of us in the church, right? What does love look like? It looks like Jesus. Jesus, verse 16, laid down his life for us. He's the true definition of love. And because of him, notice what John says in verse 16. He says, we know love. We know love. We see it in Jesus, but we also feel it because of Jesus. Now, now in John's world, at the time that he wrote, in the Greek language that he wrote in, there were a few different Greek words that were used to, to, for our one English word, love. The word eros in his language was the word that was used to describe sexual love. The word storge was the word for family love. The word philea was the word of brotherly or friendship love. And agape was the word that Christians took to mean self-giving, unalterable, sacrificial love. It loves without an expectation of any repayment. And Jesus is the definition of that agape love because he laid down his life for us, and so John from that urges us as the church to lay down our lives for our spiritual family. And I should say this before I move on to talk about this reality, I should say this, God loves the world. And if you're here today and you've yet to receive the love of God into your heart and into your life, I have good news for you, God loves you. And he loves you so much that he sent his son to become like you, to become a human being. And he lived a perfect and sinless life because none of us could. And then at the end of that perfect and sinless life, he died on a cross. And why did he do so? Well, he died in substitute for you and for me. He was taking all the judgment of the whole world into his body, including your own, there upon the cross. And the father raised him from the grave three days later as an evidence that his sacrifice, his substitution for you and for me was sufficient. 
You see, he loves you. He loves you so much that he died for you. And the Bible teaches that if you want to receive his forgiveness, you must believe in Jesus. You must trust in Jesus. You must say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sin. Would you come into my life? Would you make me new? Would you let me be your child? And the Bible teaches that if you confess him with your mouth and if you believe in him from your heart, you too will be saved. You will come into his family. You can do it right now as I'm teaching, right now as I'm declaring the truth privately in your own heart. Say, God, have mercy upon me a sinner. Come into my life and make me new. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sin, and he will birth you into his family right now in this moment. But let's think for a second about how Jesus laid down his life for the brothers. Obviously, Jesus ultimately laid down his life on the cross, didn't he? But before he died on the cross, what was Jesus doing? Did he live 33 years of his life sitting on the couch, eating Doritos, and binging Netflix? (laughs) There's nothing wrong with some Doritos and some Netflix from time to time, but Jesus spent his whole life laying down his life for for the people he loved. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because sometimes when we hear an exhortation that we should lay down our lives for our spiritual family, we might convince ourselves that we'd be willing to do that monumental act of laying down our lives if the opportunity ever presented itself. But what the Lord is showing us is that the opportunity to deny ourselves and love others, it presents itself to us every single day of our lives. I think for many people, the idea of taking a bullet once is likely easier than denying themselves a thousand times for an individual. Maybe you could imagine it like this. Imagine that you're saving up for retirement and you've got a nest egg going. Just pick a number that's impressive to you. I'll just throw one out for the church. Let's say as you've saved, you get to a point where you've, you've hit the $100,000 mark. And there it is, it's set in savings. You'll tap into it in the years to come. And let's imagine, for the sake of this illustration, that God then says to you, I want you to give all of that away. Now, I'm not saying that God is saying that. I'm not even giving some kind of like behind-the-scenes suggestion or something like that. Don't get me wrong. This is just an illustration. What would be easier to do? Write a $100,000 check, pray about it, find someone, somewhere, some missionary and just, all right, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna take the plunge, boom, it's gone. Or to go and withdraw $100,000 and have a bunch of $100 bills in cash that for the rest of your life you have to say goodbye to. Where every single day you gotta find a new person. Here, here's this, here's the, this is my retirement, by the way. This is all, this is all for you. I don't know about you, but for me, that sounds like a more painful experience. You see, to die for someone is noble, but to die to ourselves over and over again for someone else, that's divine. We must lay down our lives. Now, number six, we have to keep our hearts wide open. Keep your heart wide open. Let's read verse 17 together. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, 
yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? All right? I just talked to you about little by little sacrifice as opposed to one big monumental sacrificial death kind of thing. And John backs up that concept right here. Uh, he says, when you see a brother in need, yet close your heart against him, that's unloving. In other words, if God's love abides in us, we would help them when we see that opportunity. Now, let me take a second and give, a, a, I think, what are a couple of needed parameters for this verse and verses like these in Scripture. First, it seems that John is thinking of people that we're in a relationship with in the body of Christ. You know, John, in the time that he wrote this, could not envision a day where someone could express their need on the other side of the nation with a Kickstarter fund or a GoFundMe or something like that. And you come across so many needs every single day and he's saying, hey, you see the need, you should do something about that need. I think he's thinking of those that we're in relationship with in the body of Christ, our church. Second, as anyone who's ever worked in a church office will tell you, verses like these are sometimes used by those who take advantage of others in the church and guilt them into financial aid or financial support. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've been on the other end of a conversation with someone who... Uh, their first time ever coming to the church was driving by on Highway 68 in the middle of a Wednesday, and they pull up and they have some kind of need, and it's like, how did you hear about us? Why are you here asking for money? Well, you call yourself a Christian, don't you? What would Jesus do, you know, kind of thing? And I, I think the Lord is asking us to take care of our spiritual family, but not just to let ourselves get uh, run over and taken advantage of. So the question is, how far should our help go? Well, I think here's maybe one way to think about this. Your help or your aid should go as far as love goes. In other words, there comes a point when it's no longer loving to provide the help. And where love stops, so should the aid. But John's concern isn't all of that in this passage. His concern is that our hearts would remain open to our spiritual family. Notice how he says there in verse 17, if you see your brother in need and you aren't moved to help them, then you have, verse 17, closed your heart against him. That just sounds to me like a person who has created a defensive mechanism that closes their heart to other legitimate, real human beings that they're in relationship with. And this can happen in the body of Christ where we build up walls to keep us from being able to love others. I watched this happen with a friend of mine not that long ago. He was a pastor and his story is not as typical as you might imagine. I've known a lot of pastors who I thought were gonna give themselves to bitterness because of something that happened against them, but they didn't. It's often not the case. They just keep on plugging away, loving the body of Christ. But this particular friend, he was abused in the church and eventually gave in to bitterness. And pretty soon, everybody was the enemy. Everybody was the enemy. His heart was bitter. He was filled with vitriol. 
He'd not kept his heart open, according to John, and soft towards others. We have to work hard for this, to keep a soft and feeling heart towards others. We have to keep our heart wide open. All right, let's look at the seventh and last point in verse 18. The seventh point that I wanted to make is let love be an action. Let love be an action. Not just a feeling, but an action. He says in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now we all understand what John is saying here, right? I remember years, years ago, I used to play a lot of basketball. And there are four different types of basketball players that are out there. One type of basketball player is the all talk and no game basketball player. You know, he's just running his mouth, he's talking trash, but he's got no game to back it up. Then there's another type of player. He's the no talk, no game basketball player. You know, it's good that he says nothing because he can't back anything up in the first place. So he just kind of does his thing and just kind of gets by. Then you've got the all talk, all game player. I mean, they talk, they chirp, they're telling you what they're going to do to you, and then they do it to you. (laughs) They got the game to back up the words that they're speaking. And then there's a fourth kind of player, the rarest of all, no talk, all game. You know, they don't talk about what they're going to be. They don't talk about what they're going to do, but they get out on the court and they just dominate. And John is telling us that, or inviting us into that latter kind of action when he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We say different statements that back this up all the time. We say things like actions speak louder than words. We say that. So if that's true, then let's let love be an action word. We say things like talk is cheap but love costs, so let's spend our lives for others. See, Paul told Titus to teach the church to be a people who are zealous for good works. So rather than talk about it, we need to do it. We need to let love be an action word. All right, after thinking about this passage on Christian love, there's a, there's, you know, just one interpretation of any scripture, but there's lots of different applications, so I'll just wrap it up by giving you my trademark six applications to close this out. And you can just catch these online if you want to, but real quickly, number one, don't let your first question be, how well am I being loved? You see, for a lot of folks in the church, this is the first thing they think about. How much am I being noticed? How much am I being taken care of? How well am I being loved? But the mature believer has turned from that and begins saying, how well am I loving? What opportunities do I have to love others here? Number two, if our hearts are prone to jealousy, like Cain with Abel, number two, learn to have a healthy relationship with social media. You know, the the things you're seeing there are just snapshots. They're not true anyways. And if your heart is prone to jealousy, then you've gotta be cautious about those little envy-inducing apps and devices. Number three, avoid conversations where other Christians are ridiculed. You know, in an environment like this, Christians of different stripes or convictions or maturity levels are negatively uh, portrayed. They're made fun of. And everybody laughs But with the laughter, they've invited cancer into their souls. So don't give yourself to that kind of talk. Number four, 
Find a church community to love and serve. Find a church community to love and serve. Now, you know, I think many of you have done that, and this is the church community that you've decided to love and serve. But as a pastor who's been around for a while, I know that there's a certain kind of Christian who likes to just continually forever float from church to church. You know, you ask them, what church do you go to? And it's like, well, that church on Highway 68. Which one? Well, I go to Shoreline and Calvary and Cypress and Compass Church. That's my church. And, you know, for you, my heart for you, if that describes you, is that you would find a church to give yourself to. It doesn't matter to me if it's this church or not. I would just rather have you find a church that you can be known in, that you can serve in, that you can give to, and that you could commit to. And maybe for you, uh, Calvary Monterey has been trying out a little while. Well, let the tryout be over and just get in to the body of Christ. All right, number five, ask for the Spirit's help. Ask for the Spirit's help. Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love. So we need the Holy Spirit's help to be able to love each other. And we also need the leading of the Spirit to know times where we're to act out on the love that God has put in our hearts. So ask the Holy Spirit to help you. And finally, number six, if you're in the stage of life where you're considering a career path, you know who you are, if that describes you, consider the ministry. It says in 2 Chronicles 16, verse nine, for the eyes of Yahweh roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those whose hearts are completely his. I think this means that God is looking for people who will serve him. God is looking for people. And today, he might be looking at you. Say yes. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.